Let's bow, shall we, for a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful, Father, for the way that it speaks to human need. And though it's a divine book, yet it, it has those things that relate to our everyday life, some of those things that are, are mundane to a, a blessed God like thou. But Lord, to us, it's right where we live. And so we thank you for that, and we're thankful that you are willing to deal in these kinds of problems, the kinds of problems we get into because we are not godly, because we're not holy, and it's your desire that we be holy. And so, Lord, you, you lift us up time and time again and bring us close to yourself. Lord, we pray this morning that you will, you will open the word to us, help us to gain and to grow as a result of coming to this book and not only studying the concepts that are found in this book of Proverbs, but coming to an understanding of the way this book relates to all of the themes of Scripture. Help us to understand these things, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's uh, good to have all of you with us this morning as we begin our new semester of men's class. I've got good news and bad news. The good news is I'm, I mean, the bad news is I'm back. The good news is that uh, John's standing by in case I fall over again. <laughs> we, um, <clears throat> we hated to end so abruptly something that had become such a habit in our life, uh, and that is being here on Wednesday morning. And um, I went through quite a, quite a time. I haven't really said a whole lot of it uh, about it um, in public, uh, but um, I... Uh, started out with a stomach flu one Wednesday morning, and uh, that was the beginning of the end, although I didn't know it. The next thing I knew, I had laryngitis. I think I was back that next week, but the following week had laryngitis. On the, and when I was just getting over the laryngitis, I got the flu uh, and uh, came back uh, raring to go with the, after I'd finished the flu and I was feeling better. And I had some kind of a relapse. Uh, some uh, people have called it a post viral syndrome that attacks the central nervous system and um, I was so weak that um, it was all they could do to prop me up there on Sunday mornings to preach but uh, Wednesday mornings was a little too much and then as I was beginning to feel better it was almost Christmas time so we let John finish out uh, the time so we appreciate uh, John and uh, some people said it was very refreshing to have John and uh, the way they said it it sounded like they just soon I stay in bed on Wednesday mornings but I'm not quite old enough for that so uh, we barely got started that's the crazy thing about it I, I've never this never happened to me I've never had that length of sickness so long in all my life so um, and we just about have to kind of start over where we were but I'll, I'll just review the first part of verse 16 of chapter 11 that's where we were Chapter 11, verse 16, and we'll, we'll try to pick up and uh, rush through the first part, which some of you have already heard, and then we'll, we'll get to the latter part of this verse, hopefully uh, before too long this morning. The thing that we've said about this particular proverb is that uh, there's more than one way to the top. Ruthlessness is not the only way. And the, it's again uh, uh, the... The concept and idea of putting two contrasting things together. In this case, uh, a gracious woman retaineth honor, and strong men retain riches. 
And the thing you have to see going into this, uh, as far as the proverb itself is concerned, is that when a man wants to uh, or attains riches, gets to the place where he's a wealthy man, um, enough money so he can buy anything virtually that he wants, uh, what does he go after then? Well, you know, those kind of men become politicians, don't they? Um, they, they're looking for honor. They're looking for position. They're looking for power. They're looking for something that, in a sense, money can't buy. In some senses, they think it can. And uh, so, in this particular case, the woman who is gracious and may be very poor and have no wealth or no riches in the material sense attains the thing that men try to attain as a, as a uh, super goal after they have made their fortune, after they've made their, made their money. And uh, so that's the picture that's being placed before us. Now, first of all, the woman is brought into focus. And uh, whereas it's speaking of a woman, um, because the women, of course, particularly of Solomon's day, uh, were, were looked upon as though they were sort of second-class citizens. And uh, uh, for a woman to attain honor was really something. Now, it may not be uh, understood that way so much today. But nevertheless, uh, the idea of a woman reaching a place of honor and prestige in that day was almost unheard of. About the only woman that attained that kind of position usually got it about the way that uh, the man, in the contrast, would get it. And that is through uh, being becoming a queen through ruthlessness and uh, that sort of thing. In which case, uh, there would be a certain amount of honor given to her because of her office. And so we're dealing here with a, with a weak woman as opposed to a ruthless, tough um, uh, man of great, uh, great stature and ability. That's what, what the contrast is here. And in this case, rather than being any kind of an aggressive woman, she is a, a woman with hen, grace, graciousness. It means to bend. It means to, it means to stoop in kindness. It means that, that she's pleasant and uh, that, that she has, and this is one of the keys to this particular word when referring to a woman, that it, she has an objective beauty or an inner, inner character. It's not, not a, a matter of her outer adorning, uh, the plating of the hair, the putting on of apparel, the wearing of jewelry, that sort of thing. Uh, it's not her personal attractiveness outwardly, but rather it is the hidden beauty of the heart in that which, is not, uh, which is, cannot be corrupted and is precious in the sight of God, even a meek and quiet spirit. So we talked a little bit about the, the idea of graciousness, and uh, we learned that uh, it's used to describe, uh, describe charm or, or beauty, but always behind it is the implication of that inner character. And uh, we gave you a whole listing of verses uh, that dealt in the book of Proverbs with this particular word, in particular uh, the idea of the woman. You go through and you come up with this little ten-point summary after you've looked at the verses that we looked at. I'll just review that for you again. Uh, here's some questions you can ask. Is she obedient to her parents? Is she marked by a combination of mercy and truth? Does she show adherence to the wisdom of God, stabilized by the Word of God? Is she uh, organized, planning ahead? Is she humble? Is she committed to doctrine? Does she uh, have the kind of intelligence that leads to success? 
Is she more concerned about inner character than money? Does she guard her purity? Develop gracious speech? Does she give a harvest? Or excuse me, I couldn't read my own writing here. Uh, does she give an honest rebuke? Uh, rather, or when needed, rather than just being a flatterer? And is she a woman who fears God? Some of you single guys say, man, where is she? I want to, I want to marry her. Uh, I would hope so. Because that is the kind of woman uh, that in addition to Proverbs 31 and all that's said there about the woman of capacity, uh, that's the kind of woman that, that um, is the positive por- profile in the book of Proverbs as opposed to the strange woman or the woman that's loose in her morals and goes her own way. Now, the word for woman is isha, means in its root form, soft, pliable, tender, the, the concept is that it's the opposite of the man who is designed uh, to, uh, to lead uh, by the uh, order of creation as well as by the word that's used to describe the man. And then it says that this kind of woman uh, retaineth uh, or sustains or maintains honor. The... Um, word retaineth means to grasp securely, to lay hold of. And uh, the thing that the woman is laying hold of is the word kabod. Fascinating word in, a, in many ways because you're dealing here with a word that means weighty, that which is heavy. And anything heavy in terms of heavy metals, uh, that sort of thing, were considered valuable. A, a measure of grain would have one value. A heavier measure would have greater value. But what it's speaking of is real value. And I think you should understand that, that that's, the, that's the, um, the heart of the word. Um, that, it's, that it's real value. It's not, it's not the uh, superficial value, for instance, that people will attach uh, to uh, money. We speak of real estate, okay? Uh, real estate... Uh, has to do with with uh, real property. Uh, has to do with something tangible, something or something that that has um, at least is supposed to have an enduring value. All right, and uh, as opposed, for instance, to a, a dollar uh, which loses value as it's inflated, property uh, keeps up with its the inflation theoretically anyway. And so there's a sense in which the property uh, is kabod, whereas the loose currency, particularly currency as we know it, uh, would have less value. Gold and silver, things like that were said to be kabod uh, because it was enduring. In the New Testament, you remember uh, that it tells us that we are to lay up in, our, uh, in heaven uh, gold and silver and precious stones. Those are things that, that in the mind of the ancient person uh, was real value, all right? And um, uh, the wood, hay, and stubble, things that could be burned in particular, uh, were considered perishable, and therefore they would not be kabod. Here's a woman now who, by her life, by her character, by the graciousness of that life, uh, she retains honor. And uh, there's actually, there's only one, uh, uh, the only times that you find the term kabod used directly in regard to weight is in 1 Samuel 4.18 where it speaks of Eli and it says he was very heavy. He was fat, in other words. And uh, 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 26 where they weighed Absalom's hair 
and it was heavy. Uh, th that's used then in the literal sense of being heavy. But all of the other passages, 376 times in the Hebrew Bible, and incidentally, uh, in Psalms, 64 of them, and Isaiah, 63 of them, uh, Ezekiel has 33 of them, and uh, um, or Exodus, excuse me, 33, and Ezekiel, 25, and the book of Proverbs used 24 times. All of those times, it's speaking primarily of honor. Now, in the purely secular sense, a person who had wealth was honored. But Proverbs and Solomon here is making clear that this is no criteria. A person, the trappings of glory without the weightiness of character is really an offense to life. And I want you to look at a couple of passages with me. Proverbs chapter 21. Look at verse 21. He that followeth after righteousness and mercy finds, if you follow after these two things, righteousness and mercy, then the result will be, you'll find life, you'll find righteousness, and you'll attain honor. Righteousness and mercy. Now you just think of that for a moment. Of course, it's my opinion that wherever you see a listing of attributes that are the attributes of God, that implied in the background are all of the attributes. In other words, God is uh, righteous, just, immutable, love. Um, I'm talking primarily of his moral characters. Actually, he's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Uh, he's holy. He's sovereign. Uh, he's life or eternal life. Uh, so on. These are the, the attributes of God. Well, we'll never be omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent. But, and we'll never be immutable. Uh, we'll never be sovereign. All right? But God says we can be righteous. God says we can be just. God says we can be love. Uh, God says we can have eternal life. God says we are to be holy and so on. Veracity is another one, which we can't really be, although we can have uh, truth to that degree. Now, whenever moral attributes are being listed, it's implying a godliness, actually. You find that all the way through the Old Testament. God doesn't bother making a long list and giving all of the attributes right down the line every time He wants to encourage you to be godly. He'll say you should be righteous. And that specifically refers to righteousness. But when He says you, you should be righteousness, show mercy, have love, and so on, then that is, is really saying be godly. You're a godly individual. If you follow after righteousness and mercy, and with it all of the other attributes of God, we can put mercy in here as well, then um, you will find life. Everybody wants life. And of course in the Old Testament, one of the, one of the things that was, was related to a person to speak of of a full life and a happy life and a successful life and all of those things was just simply to say that he would be given life. Um, remember what, uh, what it says in um, uh, Deuteronomy uh, the, uh, uh, and also in Exodus 22 uh, when it says, Honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you and that your days may be long in the earth. Long life. 
long life was... You've got to understand, in all of the Old Testament, the thing that the people were thinking of was not so much eternal life as in the New Testament. God promised them a land. God promised them a heritage. God promised them a seed. God promised them ultimately a Messiah. Right? All of those things will be a part of Israel's inheritance in future days and added to it is the uh, minor little detail of eternal life as well to those that put trust in Jesus Christ. But the idea is that that in the Old Testament um, you think of things physical much more than you do in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament we're looking for a heavenly home and uh, it's interesting to see how some of the Old Testament characters saw beyond and uh, for instance, Abraham looked for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He saw actually into the eternal realm, but he got there by way of the physical, by way of the land, by way of the, the, the promises that God had made with the nation of Israel, which were, were material and physical in content. And one of those promises was a long life. In the, in the uh, New Testament, excuse me, in the New Testament, we're not so concerned about living a long life as we are about having eternal life. And uh, so there's a little change of thought. But uh, the idea is the same. And so you have life, and then you, you have what you're looking for, which is the first of these, righteousness. But you also have honor. Honor. And you see, once again, that's, in a sense, that's the top of the heap. When you can't, when you can't gain any more money and you can't gain any more power, and you can't gain any more influence, the person wants honor. There are many, many men who died and on their deathbed confessed that they never achieved what was really important in life because they died in disgrace or they died uh, without having achieved the honor that they had hoped to have. Here it says, if you follow after righteousness and mercy, you find life. Now that's the path to it. Don't think for a, for a minute that you can just go your own way and ultimately you are going to be honored. Remember, Scripture says that God will honor those that honor Him. How do you honor God? Follow after righteousness and mercy, right? Follow after godly character. Chapter 22, verse 4. Here's some more. By humility and the fear of the Lord. I tell you, that's a, that's a shocker. Whoever thought that you would get riches, honor, and life as a result of humility. It's just not the way it's done in the world. You realize that the concept of humility is an attitude of dependence. Pride is independence. Humility is dependence. It's where you say, I can't do it alone. Humility with God is saying, God, I need you every hour. I know I can't go it alone. Humility with men is saying, hey, I need you. I'm not trying to sound humble here, but more and more as I go on in the Christian life, I recognize how desperately I need the people with whom I work, the people in the congregation. I can't go it alone. My, my brain isn't infinite by any means, and I need the input of people. I need to rub shoulders with people. I need to know people. I need to love people. I need that. And I'm a, I'm a needy guy, okay? I've got to have you. And uh, if you're honest, you've got to have me. Whether you like me or not, all right? And we've got to have each other. That's a humble attitude. But you know how it is out there, all right? 
something you don't want to let anybody that's working with you there know that you need them. Because you might want to fire them or you might want to, uh, you might want to get their job or something like that, see? You've got to scratch your way to the top. Isn't that the way to the top? No. God's way up is down. Scripture says, promotion cometh not from the east or from the west. Promotion cometh from the Lord. And every businessman in the world should learn that verse. Promotion comes from the Lord. New Testament put it another way in both Peter and James. It says this, that you are to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you in due time. And we think, we think we've got to get out there as Christian men. We've got to get out there. We've got to compete with the world. We gotta, we've got to uh, play the game by their rules. All right? You play the game by their rules, and the promotion you get will be the promotion of men. But remember this. The promotion of men always leads to an attitude of pride. Because the promotion of men is as you, you scratch the back of the other person and, and compromise sometimes your own principles and this sort of thing, man will boost you up carry on his shoulders like a coach off of a football field, make you a big man, your head will swell, you get proud. Now, Scripture says in the same text in both Peter and James that God sets himself in battle array against the proud. You want men for you? God's against you. Okay? And I just am inclined to think that when God's against me, he can do far worse to me than when man's against me. Better thing is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and let Him exalt you. And listen, when you play king of the hill that way, nobody can knock you off. Because when God establishes a man, you know, I, I just look, for instance, at, at David. You know, here's Saul, right? Saul uh, disobeys God. And uh, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel points a finger at him and tells him to obey is better than sacrifice, and so on and so forth. That whole text there. And because you've disobeyed the Lord, your kingdom's going to perish, right? Now, he'd been pushed up by men. He'd become very proud and independent. He went and did his thing and thought, who cares? God says your kingdom's going to perish. Now, fascinating, because it didn't just, he didn't drop dead. And people get the notion that because God is loving and God is patient and because God, my dad used to say, the mills of God grind exceeding, exceeding slow, but exceeding fine. All right? And you look at Saul and you say, good night. He lived after that and continued to be king. And his kingdom was not lost until his death. But God knew what he's doing. And his kingdom ended in disgrace and dishonor. Meanwhile, God goes over and he picks a shepherd boy by the name of David. And he looks at David and he says, Your kingdom will be forever. Forever. And of course, it's perpetuated in the person of Jesus Christ. This shepherd boy, humble, so humble that when Jesse brought his boys out, you know, lined them up, Samuel said, boy, that's a good looking one. Is this the one, Lord? The Lord said, nope. Goes right down the line, checks all the brothers out from top to bottom. None. Finally, Samuel says, is this all you got? All of these brothers lined up. Is this all you got? Well, how about 
there's one more, but you wouldn't want him. Poor little shepherd boy. Bring him to me. This is the anointed of the Lord. And why? Because man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks where? The heart. And you see, you can fool me. You can pretend you're humble when you're proud. You can, you can uh, pretend that you're rich when you're poor. You can pretend all kinds of things. You can fool me. But the Lord looks at your heart. He knows where you are. And if you've got a heart with, an, uh, with a fist in it, raised, defying God, saying, I can do it on my own, the rugged individualist, I can make it. I, who, needs, who needs your help in this? I'm, I'm smart enough and I'm sharp enough and I can make it. And you may claw your way to the top like all the rest of the guys. When you get there, you got God against you. If God be for you, who can be against you? But how about putting that in reverse? If God's against you, who's for you? See? And I, I, I'm, I've never been an advocate of Christian people... Um, being lazy. Scripture speaks against sloth. Be diligent. I've never, I've never been an advocate of Christians saying, oh well, I'm just a Christian, so I guess, I guess and my home is in heaven, and therefore uh, I, shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't work at being sharp as a businessman or anything like that. I'm not saying that. You should be the best businessman that you can possibly be. You should be the best you can be at your profession. But you must be that without the assault on others without the clawing your way to the top and leaving a, a trail of bodies behind like happens in industry all the time. Uh, you must do it without uh, becoming proud and independent. You must do it without compromising your Christian testimony in any way, shape, or form. Compromising one word of Scripture. Those are things you must do without. You actually, you've got to realize that, that you are at a disadvantage from the purely secular standpoint. You can't play the game by the rules of the world. And there'll be times you're going to get busted. What's it going to do? It'll humble you. What happens when you're humble? God will exalt you. Don't worry about it. Be the best you can be. I love that text in 1 Peter, you know, where Peter really hits the nail on the head on this. You know, he tells us, he tells us, you know, the, 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 how the the master treats the slave and how the slave should respond to the master. And then uh, he, he said, he's very subtly throws this in. He says, but now look, make sure that you're not suffering for your own faults. Now, I had a Christian man come one time and say he was suffering for Jesus' sake. He lost his job because of his witness, his testimony. So I refused to do some things and so on and so forth. Well, it happened through strange circumstances that I was destined to meet his former boss. And uh, the man was very much interested in Christianity. And I was witnessing to him, sharing the gospel with him. And the guy says, man, never heard that before. Never knew that before. He was going along like this, you know. Well, then I found out, right as we were talking in the conversation, found out who the man was. He was the awful ogre that had just fired this man. And I made the mistake of saying, by the way, do you know so-and-so? I mentioned the name. The guy's face just dropped. And I said uh, something about him being a Christian. The man said, well, he used to work for me. I sure didn't know he was a Christian. And it, all, it hit me. This guy 
was the boss. So I said to him, I said, has he re recently worked for you? He said, yeah, recently. I said to him, why'd you fire him? He says, he's the laziest man I ever knew. He showed up late at work. He says, there's something, something about him, him being a Christian that gave him an attitude that he was special and that didn't, he didn't have to work like other people. That was a different story, wasn't it? The problem that happens so often is we are buffeted for our faults. You're fired from your job. Make sure it's because you've been diligent and uncompromising, not because you've been lazy. I think a lot of times Christians think that since they have a high calling of God in Christ Jesus, they should use company time to witness to people. Lauren Sandy uh, and uh, Doss Troutman, these men that worked with navigators, several of the books that navigators publish, um, they talk about this. I think it was the first time I read it was, was uh, in one, some of the incidents from the life of Doss Troutman. Doss Troutman uh, used to go from his office to a little coffee shop uh, at least once a day and uh, as he began to uh, uh, drink coffee the waitress in there was very friendly and and uh, he he saw her as a prospect and he always tried to witness to people